Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Trinity Church Golden Grove. Uh, today we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to go all the way to Exodus chapter 2, verse 10. These are the names of the sons of Israel, who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Azakar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered seventy in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And, if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to Hebrew midwives, those whose names were Sephirah and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave his order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. 
Then the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So in our home, we have a book that describes the day in the life of a small boy. And as he narrates his day, from start to finish, he keeps on telling us, the reader, just how bad his day really is. He's about 10, and just listen to some of the tragic, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad moments in his day. For example, he wakes up with chewing gum in his hair. He trips on his skateboard getting out of bed. At breakfast time, he doesn't get a toy in his cereal box. His brothers do. At lunch, his mum forgets to pack the cake in his lunchbox. He finds that in the schoolyard, his friend is no longer his best friend. His teacher does not like the picture of the invisible cat that he drew, and he gets blamed for getting into a fight with his brothers. The shop doesn't have his favourite colour shoes. The dentist finds a cavity in his tooth, and there was lima beans for dinner. Later, he drops a marble down the bath plug and has to wear his least favourite pair of pyjamas to bed. And for 10-year-old Alexander, it really is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day indeed. Often when one of our kids is having a grumpy day too, we will read that book, but we put their name in place of Alexander and add in some similar situations they've had in their day um, that's made them feel upset. And we talk about how our days are sometimes, sometimes feel like that, don't they? feels like nothing goes quite right. But, and we always try and do this, is to point them to the things that are good, like mum and dad's love for them, and most importantly, the unchanging, never-failing character of our God and who he is in Jesus Christ. Now, you know, I'm sure each of us could have a book written about our very worst days, or weeks, or months, or years, or decades. And I'm sure each of us too could describe a painful event in vivid colour of something that's happened to us. And if we all wrote a book about that, we would find that each of us, while we have different moments and experiences in suffering, all of us share a common experience of pain through it all and the longing for hope and for mercy. You know, as I think about the times in my life when I've had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, particularly when I'm confused about what's next, I'll often say something like, God, what are you doing? I can't see the point. I can't understand what's going on. Would you help remind me that you're in control and what I should be doing at this moment, Lord? Because I need reminding too that God's at work in my life, really, truly at work in my life, even in my terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. And he's working for his glory and my good. Maybe you've had a similar experience. I'm I'm probably sure you have. But you know, as difficult as it can be, it's often when things seem most perilous that God works most powerfully. And in fact, this is what we see in the beginning of the book of Exodus, chapters 1 and chapter 2. When it seems like God is not making good on his promise to deliver you, we know that from this story today, God is not giving up. God is faithful to his covenant people. He will take care of the rescuing. And that what we need to know today, what I need to know today, is that God's got it. God's going to take care of it, even in my terrible, horrible days. So, let's look at Exodus 1 and 2, and what life was like for the Israelites 
God's people, the Hebrew nation, in Exodus 1. We'll explore the passage in three sections today. How we got here, verses 1 to 7. A nation in pain, verses 8 to 22. And then in 2, 1 to 10, we'll meet a rescuer who finally arrives to redeem and deliver God's people. You can follow along in your outline in the notes section as well. Please do that. So firstly, how we got here. Well, the first thing to note is that the book begins in verse 1-1 by saying, and these are the names. Now, we don't translate that conjunction at the beginning of our English Bibles, but it's there in the Hebrew, and these are the names. Meaning, this is the key, meaning we're ready to read Exodus as a continuation of the Genesis story, what's gone before. We're reminded of this as well by way of a brief genealogy in verses 1-1-6. to We learn how the descendants of Abraham and his kids and their kids, 70 in total, arrived in Egypt under Joseph's protection. Then in 1 verse 7, we have a beautiful verse that reminds us of some of the key markers in the Old Testament. Not only is this verse in verse 7 reminiscent of creation language, be fruitful and multiply, but God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 is very much alive and kicking here. Look what it says. It says, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, creation. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. You see, God's people are fulfilling the creation mandate and God's covenantal promise to Abraham in becoming a great nation. Land, offspring, blessing, lob. And so Exodus now is the next part of God's story. The part where God now highlights the need for redemption, even the need to redeem his own people, you see. And in fact, redemption is one of the three big themes, the big pillars in the book of Exodus. Redemption is seen primarily chapters 1 to 18. And we see this idea of covenant being spelled out for us in 19 to 24. And then 25 to 30 is all about God's present. Redemption, covenant, presence. We'll get through all of them in the next weeks as we look through Exodus more. And today... We most often see the word redeem, by the way, when you collect enough reward points, food shopping. Or you get an email from your favorite shop saying, here's 40% online or off now, redeem now, click here. And it captures a very little part of what redemption is, but redemption in the Bible has a much more robust understanding than simply that. Ask any Hebrew after they left Egypt, have you been redeemed? And they probably wouldn't have thought about their groceries. They probably wouldn't even have given you a personal testimony like a Christian might do today. Instead, they would tell you the national epic, their redemption in the Exodus event, God dominating Egypt, parting the waters, being set free to become a follower of him. And that's what I'm sure that person would go on to say. They were slaves in Egypt, but then in redemption, they became the people of God. And that reveals a very important idea of how we should understand redemption as well. Here's the thing. We're always redeemed for a relationship with the Redeemer. We're always redeemed for a relationship with the Redeemer. You see, God didn't free his people from oppression and then wave farewell as they crossed the Red Sea, leaving them to define the journey in life for themselves. No, they need redeeming because they were slaves to the wrong master. All that God does in Exodus is to transfer them into his service, defining them by redemption, by his redemption, not the slavery to their past, you see. And so without chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus, it would be more like, or the Exodus event, I should say, would be more like a lazy stroll after tea and biscuits. Wouldn't set up Yahweh 
as the all-powerful God of the Israelite people, in whom all the other nations here of and are afraid. They fall down into this uh, awesome God of the Hebrew nation. It wouldn't show God's own people that he's the one to do the rescuing, not them. And it wouldn't foreshadow, most importantly, the greater rescue from Satan's sin and death into God's eternal presence that God is anticipating in this very event. And so with the background, that background very fresh in our minds, the question is, well, if it's all about redemption, what do they need redeeming from? It all sounds so good in verse 7. Fruitful, multiplying, what do we make of that? Well, let's look at verse 19 and 22 and find out. We're going to see and meet now a nation in pain. A nation in pain. You know, the thing that all suffering has in common is that it hurts. It's our shared experience, like I said before, even if my suffering and your suffering is very different. And keep that in mind as we explore this chapter. Their suffering may be very different from what you have experienced, but it hurts. And so as the nation's growing, they're being fruitful, they're multiplying, a new king arises. And Joseph's legacy as a prime minister of Egypt and a faithful Hebrew man at the same time means absolutely nothing in verse 8 to this new Pharaoh. Pharaoh does not care for his legacy or his people. Now, at this point in the Bible, Pharaoh is the most vicious, vile, racist person we have met so far. He is cruel and he's oppressive. And look at how he talks about uh, the Hebrew people in verse 9. He says, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Verse 10, come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Or they will become more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave our country. Notice that unlike the other incidents in Israel's past that we have in the Old Testament, their suffering here is not because of their sin. Their suffering is grounded in the evil of Pharaoh and his sin, not theirs. Pharaoh wants to stop them growing as a nation for fear that they would make an alliance with another nation. If war broke out, they'd side with them, not with Pharaoh and they would leave Egypt. He'd lose his economy, he'd lose his workers, he'd lose his prosperity. Then in verse 11 to 22 from that, we have this epic, horrific description, in fact, of just how unrestrained Pharaoh's cruelty is to these people. We see it in four ways. Firstly, we see it's political. Pharaoh deals with them shrewdly, verse 10, for fear of the political alliance breaking out. You know, the days of seeking asylum and safety in Egypt are now gone for this people group. The ruling government is targeting them very very directly here. Not only is it political, but we see that it's economical. Verse 11, there is forced labor to build cities, storehouses. There is slavery, there is racism and ruthless working conditions in verse 13 to 14. In fact, according to one scholar describing this, he said that they organized the Hebrews into large work groups and they became an anonymous mass to depersonalize and lose any individuality that they might have in the eyes of their oppressors. The Israelites became nothing more than a tool to abuse and to use. And, and that doesn't take much to see the links with the world we live in today, does it? Or even Nazi Germany in the persecution of Jews in World War II. It really is that bad in Exodus chapter 1 as well. Not only is it that, but it's social. He hates them. He just hates these people. Verse 12, and he legislates, get this, infant side and then genocide in verse 15, 16, and 22. And finally, we learn that it's a spiritual issue as well. To be a slave in Egypt is to be unable to be the people of God. See, they need to be set free from an oppressive ruler brought under 
the loving rule and care of God their fathers, the God of their fathers. And that's something Moses talks about in chapter 5 when we get there. But you see, in verse 12, the more they were oppressed, in fact, the more they multiplied and spread. There's a Hebrew pun at work here. Pharaoh says, lest they multiply, I'll do this. And God says, actually, Pharaoh, the more they shall multiply. God's providential hand has not let go of his people. So, Pharaoh decides to step in a bit more, has a little chat with what would have been probably the head midwives uh, in verse 15 and 16, and he says, you shall kill all the male children when they're born. And that's horrific. Each woman is to have a state-sanctioned full-term abortion, even if you don't want one. However, there's a but here. Look at verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God, did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. First thing to note in that is that the this explanation actually sets up for how Moses' mum in verse chapter two, sorry, chapter two, is able to give birth to a boy. The midwives don't follow Pharaoh's orders. What that means is the only way for Moses to die as a newborn, as we learn in verse 22, is for an Egyptian to find him and throw him into the Nile. Secondly, fearing God in scripture is frequently associated with moral and ethical behavior. That's why it's mentioned here. You see, the question is, if there's no God, no, um, no God to guarantee, sorry, what is morally good, morally evil, how can we know what good actually is? At best, all we could say, I think, is that evolution has taught us that things are more efficient for our species if we cooperate on our nights. That really doesn't satisfy, does it? I mean, after all, evolution has taught uh, us that most other animals kill off the others in rivalry. And even from within their own species, they do that too. So where do you get your moral code from? If you don't believe in God, why do you feel outraged at Pharaoh's command here? After all, isn't he right in that it's more efficient to kill off all the, the nation that's threatening his own people group? I mean, isn't that what evolution does? Or what if morality and honesty originate from God, it's not something we can create. What if there's something more to than simply picking and choosing what we think is right? You see, to fear God is to actually act consistent with who God is, lest you dishonor God. Because God's character is the foundation for moral ethics and reasoning and hope for his people. And it's still that way, in fact, today. Which is why, for those that don't believe or follow Jesus, his views on life or relationships, his priorities money, work, rest, beauty, they're topsy-turvy ideas to those who don't follow Jesus. They even solicit anger from some parts of society. You see, the Christian tries to live consistent with the design and pattern and grace of God. And unless you know the God of all grace and love and forgiveness, his character, the fear of dishonoring him and his holiness, it can't define who you are and why you would live or follow his way, you see. An illustration may help here. I was afraid when Charlotte, my first child, was born. Why was I afraid? Well, simply put, I had in my arms someone so precious and valuable. I didn't want to break her. I didn't want to do something wrong because she was so fragile, small, and beautiful. I I held her with awe and with fear, dancing in my heart and mind at the same time. 
Or another example, if you've not had kids or that might be more relevant to you, maybe you get a new phone and you open it up and realize it's made in completely out of glass, front and back, and you think, golly, I better not drop this until I get a cover. You spend the rest of your day in fear that it might slip or fall or you'd scratch it and thus break this very expensive new device. Now, they're not perfect examples by any means, but they illustrate the fear of not wanting to dishonor or destroy something. And this fear, times 10,000, applied to a holy God, that's the kind of fear that we should have as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus today. And that forms part of our motivation for obeying God in ethically dicey situations like the midwives find themselves in, you see? I labor that point a little bit so that you would see, you would understand their position and the decision they made and understand just how precarious and dangerous Egypt was for the Hebrew people at this time. It was not an easy way, an easy life by any means. And that comes true in the next point in verse 22, at the high point of the drama here, Pharaoh commands his own people to throw all the newborns into the Nile. The river Nile was the main river running through Egypt, and it was looked upon the Egyptians as a god providing life for all of Egypt, and it was life-giving to them, and now it's to become a place of death for God's people, you see. And that is the background. Enslavement, exploitation, mass murder, state-sanctioned genocide to Exodus, Exodus 1. And then in verse, cha- in verse t- in chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, we now meet God's rescuer, God's redeemer. And it comes about in the most unexpected of ways, through the birth of a baby boy. Did you get that? A rescuer arrives. So after all the baby boys are marked for death, through a baby boy, God will redeem his people. And right away, there's something special about this baby that strikes his parents. Look at verse 2. When his mother saw him, he was a fine child, so she hid him for three months. Now, that's so strange. I mean, what mother does not think that newborn baby boy is a fine, good-looking child? Why does it seem that Moses' good looks save him? Some rabbis um, have thought throughout history that Moses was born circumcised. That's why he was uh, looked upon as a little bit different. But I think the answer is actually more in line with what we've seen in the account so far of Exodus. The creation thing has been running from Exodus 1-1 all the way to here. And seeing this child as fine or even good is an acceptable way of understanding it. Is it the same language God used when he created the world? And so we have a hint here at something new God is doing in Moses, you see. Not only that, ever since Genesis 3, people have been waiting and anticipating the birth of a child who will crush the head of the snake, who will defeat sin and bring people back into God's presence. And we have glimpses of that, haven't we? Here and there, Lamech, for example, Genesis 5 says... Maybe Noah, my son, will bring people back to God. Sadly, though, each time we see that the rescuer, in fact, needs rescuing himself. And so we meet this baby boy with the hope that he might be the one to finally put right what went wrong in the Garden of Eden to redeem God's people back to God and rescue them from Egypt at the same time. And as the story goes on, Moses' mom could not hide him for too much longer, so she gives him up to the river Nile. There simply was not a way out of this any longer. And with tears in her eyes, she placed Moses in a basket left to die. It's horrific. It's sad. 
And then we have a side note in 2.4 of Moses' sister, Miriam, in fact. We learn her name is that a bit later. Big sister, they're standing there watching. Then it gets, the drama gets heightened. Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, heads down the Nile to take a bath. That'd be, this is, this is tense. I mean, after all, in 122, all the people are now freed and allowed to, in fact, kill Hebrew babies by throwing them in the Nile. And then Pharaoh's daughter hears the sound of a Hebrew baby floating on the Nile crying. What on earth will she do? Well, thankfully, she's a lot more compassionate and merciful than her father, as 2 verse 6 says. And then, if that's not enough, that she has compassion on this child, another climax of the story is that Moses' sister pipes up at this moment, offers a voice which changes Moses' future, the future of God's people, in fact, and says, why don't I go and get one of the Hebrew mothers to look after him? And then in a moment filled with joy and irony, listen, Moses' mum is now paid to look after her own child in the middle of a time when all mothers could not have baby boys. And then a few years later, Moses then becomes the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, who's a Hebrew boy. Isn't that amazing? So what do we say about God's providence here in this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad 400 years? Let's summarize, if we can, three things I think we can see. Firstly, is that is in the providence of God. Um, can you see that it looked like the whole time Pharaoh was in control, but he never had the last word. The chain of providence always kept God one step ahead of the evil against his people, even when there was no happy ending at that moment, like when Moses' mum put Moses in the basket in the river. Not to mention this, that in the crisis moments, the people with insight are who? Who are the people that, that are drawn out as the people that know what to do or fear God? They're the women. The midwives, Moses' mum, Moses' sister, Pharaoh's daughter, thwarting her father's evil plans. And this is the exactly the pattern, is exactly the modus of operandi of how God likes to work, is it not? All the irony, all the people, all the ways that it happens, God is paying attention to it all. And, and women, may I just say that you are certainly never undervalued in God's economy or God's kingdom, and this is evidence of that. Please be encouraged by this, that even in the gut-wrenching painful moments of motherhood, of life as a woman, that God is paying attention to you. God is paying attention to my life as well. After all, Jesus himself says in Matthew 10.30, many years later, even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. And yes, it takes great faith to trust in God when difficulties and pain surrounds us. But when it seems like God is not making good in his promise to deliver you, We know that from this story, God is not giving up. He is faithful to his covenant people. He will take care of the rescuing, the birth of Moses, and much later the birth of Jesus. His concrete way of saying, he's got this. Trust him. Fear him. Look to him. My question for us all is just that. Will we, will I trust in the God who has given us concrete evidence of his providential care for me, for you? Will you look to the God who is fulfilling his covenant with you and in you as you go into your week, knowing that in all the moments of your life, he is there at work in all things 
for his glory. And may you take a step back and reflect on your life and say, wow, God's hand in this I can see. And this brings us to the greatest part of Exodus 1 and 2, how it points forward for us to see the unexpected hope of Jesus. You know, many years later, God's people were again being oppressed by a foreign nation. They too had been waiting 400 years for God to speak, to act, to break into history. And, like God did with Moses, another baby was soon on the scene. In a very matter-of-fact, humble kind of way as well. Even with a death sentence of boys hanging over this young baby's head as well. This was in fact Jesus, the great one that Moses points us to. The one that not simply delivered his people from an evil ruler like Pharaoh, but Jesus, the one who delivers us from the evil in our own hearts, from sin, from Satan, from death itself. And that at just the right time, according to the plan of God, Jesus was born as Moses was. But Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, one of us, yet distinct from us. And that this Jesus is amazing the world through the ironic message that his cross and resurrection is the way to the true exodus, the true redemption that you and me seek, the true hope to our terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. Because the Bible's ultimate goal, God's ultimate plan of redemption, his drama that's unfolding page after page is not simply dwelling, uh, people dwelling equally with one another. The goal of God, goal that God has is God dwelling with man. And that's the equalizing factor for all people to get along with one another. That breaks the barrier. You see, in the most unlikely event, God raised up his deliverer onto a cross, dying or death to rescue you from the curse and evil of sin and to never leave or forsake us in our suffering, promising us his comfort. I do wonder, is that where your hope rests today? And all of that leads us to wrap this up in one final thought, and I've called that fearing the true king. As you and me get on with living for God here and now, I, you, should have a healthy fear of God too, like the midwives. As you trust and as I trust the providential hand of God and hope in his presence with us. You know, over in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, the Apostle Paul knows just what a healthy fear of God does to us. He says this, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. As we work out what the results of our salvation, our greater redemption in Jesus looks like in each situation, that's what work out means. We must keep the appropriate attitude towards God our great rescuer. It means having an air of humility, obedience to God, being more concerned with his character than my reputation or your reputation, more fearful of God's holiness than anyone's opinion of me or what it might mean to choose him in this morally dicey situation at the office that I'm confronted with. And for me, in my own life, as I think about some of the fears I have, I'm afraid about as we return to church. What is that going to look like? Will people come? Will will people from the community still come to a church post-COVID? Will you there sitting on your couch now come to church with us and gather as the people of God, not just through a screen? The potential of a second wave of COVID and being locked down again as we're seeing in Victoria, very real. I mean, how on earth are we going to get out of this as a nation? Where is God leading me in my own life? 
And I can't help after reading this passage this week, thinking that perhaps my fears are better directed to the right and proper object and not on my circumstances. I don't know about you, but these two chapters from Exodus have been a wonderful reminder to me of where the true authority over my life rests. It's in the living, covenantal God who is faithful to his promises. And while I can't see the what, no more than the midwives could, or Moses' mum, or Moses' sister, I can once again continue to fear the God who is faithful to his side of the covenant and who gives me a new grace in his spirit to hold us up as well. And so as we've seen today, the way forward for us when we're having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad season in life is the reminder that God has already taken care of the rescuing in Jesus. That our response to God's grace in him is a healthy, God-fearing one of trust and of looking to him. And so may each of us do that as we go into our week. Trust the providential hand of God, fear him healthily, and look to him and to his Redeemer, Jesus Christ.